Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Lots to unpack here. Too much of it about Donald Trump. One of his former lieutenants pled guilty on tax charges but did not flip on the former guy. A judge told the Department of Justice it has to redact and then release the affidavit justifying the raid on Mar-a-Lago. The success of Trump-endorsed candidates is apparently making some Republicans jittery. Those triumphs include beating Liz Cheney in Wyoming. On another front, a pair of abortion stories, one in Florida, the other in Nebraska, show some parts of the country are more than a little off the wall on the subject. The Centers for Disease Control throws itself under the bus, and a star quarterback is suspended for 11 games after multiple women accuse him of sexual abuses. Some say it's not enough. And we're off. Alan Weiselberg was one of Donald Trump's chief lieutenants. Prosecutors figured he knew where the bodies were buried in Trump world, at least as far as the Trump organization was concerned. Two Manhattan DAs spent the better part of 15 months trying to get him to turn on Trump himself. No such luck. In exchange for his guilty plea, Weisselberg has agreed to testify against the Trump organization, but not against Trump himself. He'll have to pay $2 million in fines and faces a five-month jail bid, meaning he could be out in as little as 100 days. Loyalty does have its reward. And his lawyers argued that the man is in frail health, he's 75 years old, etc., etc., etc. Now, the situation with Weiselberg is separate and apart from the civil case being investigated by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, meaning Trump may not be out of the woods yet, and that's only in New York. Of course, there's also the Georgia Find Me 11,000 Votes probe that could also put him in jeopardy. But the center of national attention remains on the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Last week, a judge ordered the Justice Department to prepare to release parts of the affidavit used to justify the search. The judge said it would leave it to the Department of Justice which parts of the sensitive document should be redacted. This is both a victory for Donald Trump, who had asked for it in the first place, and for the media, who also asked for it in the first place. Trump, theoretically, gets to find out who in his inner circle sold him out. The media, on the other hand, wanted the entire affidavit to be made public. Why, you might ask? Because its contents are made to order clickbait for every media outlet in America, whether friend or foe of Donald Trump. Keep in mind that in most cases, and this is something to emphasize here, in most cases, affidavits of this type are kept secret unless or until a subject is charged with a crime. However, those waiting to see some bombshells come out of this are likely to be disappointed. The DOJ is probably going to redact large portions of the affidavit. And when I say redact, that means that they just blank out certain sections that they feel don't need to be made public. And the result could be, quite simply, a lot of gibberish. A few sentences here, a few sentences there, and a lot of blacked out material that people would have a great deal of difficulty deciphering. We already know what FBI agents took and what they were looking for. Much ado about nothing? We'll see. One thing is for certain, 
Trump will use whatever is in the affidavit to raise money. For what? Well, who knows? And the interesting thing about raising money is that the minute the raid on Mar-a-Lago was accomplished, his family started pitching people to raise money. Donnie Jr. and Eric. I don't know if Ivanka was involved or not, but Donald Jr. and Eric were involved in railing against the raid and at the same time saying, send my father money. It's amazing. And, you know, there's a $200 million war chest somewhere in Trump world. And nobody seems to know what it's being used for. And very, very few people that donated are asking for the money back. Isn't that amazing? Meanwhile, there are several media reports that say Trump is having a bit of difficulty finding legal help. This is not to say Trump is completely without counsel. The Washington Post says, and this is a direct quote, the former president's current legal team includes a Florida insurance lawyer who's never had a federal case, a past general counsel for a parking garage company, and a former host at far-right One News America. Two things appear to hamper Trump's search. One, he tends not to always pay attention to legal advice. Plus, he doesn't always pay his legal counsel. Just ask Rudy Giuliani. We already know he doesn't always surround himself with the best people outside the legal profession. Former White House aide Cash Patel, an adherent of Trump's deep state nonsense, is raising money by selling merchandise like beanies, hoodies, and t-shirts. According to one person quoted in the Post piece, many of those around him want to do just that, just to remain around him. And so, Donald Trump, subject of several investigations, but yet to be charged with a crime, and we need to make sure we emphasize, he hasn't been charged with a crime as yet, but he still soldiers on. And by soldiering on, I mean deflecting, stalling, what abouting, but most of all, raising money from his legions of believers. Thing is, the former president seems to be tightening his grip on the Republican Party even as he's having all these problems. As expected, his endorsed candidate beat Liz Cheney by a wide margin with the largest voter turnout in Wyoming's history. This was, of course, payback for her strident criticism of the former guy. Just as important, this marks the fourth primary defeat of a Republican who voted to impeach Trump last year. It's also the final one. This opens the very real possibility of more GOP lawmakers who will try to replay the 2020 election and spout more of Trump's nonsensical rantings. And I mean, we already have Lauren Boebert. We already have Marjorie Taylor Greene. We already have Matt Gates, And there are others that are just as reprehensible as those. And it looks like their number may grow. Now, in Wyoming... The Democrats, quite, quite frankly, and they'll tell you this, they got no shot at beating this woman who beat Cheney. Wyoming is a solid Republican state. But what a lot of people don't factor into this, Wyoming only has one congressman. One. Uno. It's a very sparsely populated state. So it doesn't necessarily portend things one way or the other 
when it comes to the Biden agenda, which Congress will have a, a hand in either furthering or destroying, it really doesn't make that much difference. Liz Cheney was a Republican anyway, and her replacement will be a Republican. So let's see what happens, shall we? Up next, two abortion stories that show just how far some states will go to abort a woman's right to choose. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks for staying with us. Two cases involving young women and abortion show in stark relief the ugliness and potential criminal charges young women face in trying to exercise their right to choose what to do with their own bodies. They also show the lengths to which law enforcement will go to prosecute young ladies. The first case is in Nebraska, where a 17-year-old girl and her mother faced charges for a medication-induced abortion. In other words, it wasn't surgical. They did this with pills. Situation also involves big tech, since Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, shared messages between mother and daughter with law enforcement. Private messages. We should make a couple of things clear. Mother and daughter are charged with a couple of different things. First, the police allege the abortion took place during the third trimester of the girl's pregnancy. Most abortions in the U.S. take place within the first 13 weeks. In Nebraska, abortions are legal until the 20th week. They may change that, but that's the way the law is now. Ironically, the law has gone after the mother, charging her with performing an abortion without a medical license and performing or attempting to abort a fetus more than 20 weeks after conception. The two charges carry a sentence of up to two years in prison and are both felonies. The daughter has not been charged with violating abortion law, but is charged with mishandling human remains because they apparently buried the remains in a backyard, concealing a death and false reporting. The daughter who was 17 at the time is being tried as an adult, which means her name will be released. This case highlights the convoluted set of circumstances that can happen in the wake of the gutting of Roe versus Wade. Now, the abortion, by the way, took place two months before the Supreme Court decision. Now, you may ask yourself, what would cause a girl to get pregnant and then, well after the fact, decide to abort the pregnancy? Now, first of all, the fact is she may not have decided to get pregnant. You know, kids do things. This is a kid we're talking about, 17 years old. Kids don't always factor certain things, including birth control, into an equation when they decide to have sex. However, I wonder, and this is pure, unadulterated speculation on my part, but suppose the girl was in a relationship that she thought was a committed relationship with the baby's father, and then... 30 weeks after the fact, the father decided to dump her. Like I said, I don't know. I've never even been to Nebraska. Yet this story in the New York Times makes very little reference to the father of this child. But isn't that how it always is? The guy isn't mentioned, while the woman faces felonies. 
Then there's the case of a 16-year-old girl in Florida. An appeals court upheld a ruling by a lower court that she lacks the maturity to have an abortion. This was despite her statement saying she is not ready to have a baby. There's a lot wrong with this decision, starting with the fact that she filed a petition because she couldn't get an abortion without one. She has no parents, yet she said her guardian had no problem with the decision to terminate her pregnancy. Now, in the state of Florida, a parent or guardian must sign off on a minor's decision to have an abortion. So if the parent doesn't exist and the guardian says, it's fine with me, in most cases, that abortion will go forward. Yet in this case, not just a judge, but a judge and an appeals court has said that this child is not able or not mature enough to have an abortion. This young lady also checked the box saying she did not need an attorney. That may signify a lack of knowledge, but not a lack of maturity. Is this the wave of the future? Will the courts start mandating taking a baby to term based on their own concept of what constitutes maturity? To say the girl lacks maturity, yet is mature enough to raise a child, seems a bit like an oxymoron. Let that sink in for a second. A court, two courts, have said she's not mature enough to have an abortion, which implies, obviously, that she is mature enough at 16 to have the baby and spend 18 years raising that baby. There's something that just doesn't make sense in all that. Yet still, just like in Nebraska, the father seems not to be a part of the equation. You know, and there's something, uh, I don't know, something problematic about a situation where courts rule where women are affected, women are impacted, but not the men. The men may end up having to pay child support if a baby's brought to term, but other than that, the men are under no obligation even to be in the life of that child. They're under a moral obligation, but not a legal or financial obligation to be in the life of that child. See, men, if assuming they make money, can write a check and take care of a monthly child support order, but they cannot be forced to be in the life of that child. Yet a woman can be forced to have a baby. And last I checked, women don't make babies by themselves. Up next, the Center for Disease Control has to clean up its own house. And Deshaun Watson, star quarterback, is suspended for 11 games. Wonder why? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention didn't exactly cover itself in glory during the COVID-19 pandemic. No need to necessarily recount those missteps here, but it looks like the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, recognizes them and has a complete overhaul 
of the agency in progress. What would more agencies of government acknowledge mistakes and pledge to do better? She's talking about nothing less than a complete overhaul of the culture at the CDC, with an eye toward responding to health emergencies much faster and much more accurately. This is certainly not an easy task because, as is the case with most bureaucracies, old habits and ways of doing things die hard. Many of the changes are about increasing accountability and diversity in the agency's workforce. Many such diversity mandates across government get bogged down and eventually accomplish very little. In this case, I'm going to bet Dr. Walensky will do the work and make the changes that she's talking about. The CDC is the go-to agency for information to the public about health issues and about health ma uh, maladies, which is most important. It can ill afford to confuse the people they serve, that is the American people. And it's pretty much a given that that's just what happened during the pandemic. Dr. Walensky is also asking Congress to mandate that states share their data with the CDC. Right now, what happens is the CDC can ask for the information, but the states don't have to provide it. And if state governments feel they will be made to look bad by sharing information, negative information, negative health information with the CDC, they don't have to. I don't know why, but they don't have to. And sharing that data is an important way that information can accurately be funneled to one place, the CDC, for analysis. Other changes are aimed at budgetary stuff that's way above my pay grade. Let's hope she can get all this done. And finally, there's Deshaun Watson. The star quarterback for the Cleveland Browns is suspended for 11 games this season and fined $5 million for what's officially called violating the league's personal conduct policy based on allegations of sexual misconduct. Now, understand, he has not been convicted of a crime. These are, in fact, allegations. The NFL says it wanted to suspend him for an entire season, but the NFL Players Association compromised with the league, and this is his sanction. Watson himself has sent out, at best, mixed signals, apologizing for what he did while saying at the same time he did nothing wrong. The compromise says the sexual assaults Watson was accused of committing were not violent. Now, again, this can end up being a bit of an oxymoron. On the one hand, I didn't do nothing. And on the other hand, I'm sorry for whatever you think I may have done. And the idea that sexual assault is not violent is one that I think a lot of women, a lot of women would forcefully push back against. That any sexual assault is violent no matter what. There are those who believe that throwing money at victims mitigates the despicable conduct of which Deshaun Watson is accused. I would strongly disagree. Sexual assault is an expression of not just power over a woman, but entitlement. This isn't the first time an athlete has been accused or even tried and convicted of sexual assault. In this case, 25 lawsuits, count them, 25, were filed against him. 
And still, the management of the Cleveland Browns support him and even says he has positive qualities. That's right, positive qualities. I shudder to think what they believe negative qualities might be. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.